Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. It gives me great pleasure to introduce formally today's guest co-host. He is a friend of NWCs. He's one of our consultant partners that we love to um, align with and collaborate with from time to time no other than Pascal Losambe, and I'm going to give his formal introduction and then we will welcome him and allow him an opportunity to greet this audience in his own way. Dr. Pascal Losambe is the co-founder and chief content officer for Synergy Consulting Company. Dr. Losambe has a bachelor's in molecular biology and biochemistry from Middlebury, uh, Middlebury College and a master's of science and biology with a focus on neurobiology from Boston College, where he received the Donald J. White Award for Teaching Excellence, a distinguished honor given annually to graduate instructors. Dr. Losambe has earned his PhD in educational leadership and policy studies at Purdue University with a focus on cultural competence. He is the keynote presenter and curriculum developer for the United Front Initiative, a city and regional program with the goal of bringing unity and reconciliation to the region. Additionally, Dr. Losambe consults and presents to companies and other organizations on various topics related to diversity, equity, inclusion, educational leadership, and organizational culture. He has led strategic vision initiatives for various institutions and has conducted multiple workshops on the topic of cultural competence at national and both international conferences. Dr. Losambe's achievements include the Mosaic Award in 2018 and being invited onto the Purdue University Educational Leadership and Policy Studies Advisory Board, the Purdue University Fort Wayne College of Arts and Sciences Advisory Board, the Young Scholars Academy Board, and the Heart of Character Leadership Committee. He previously served on the Independent School Association of Central States Equity and Justice Committee Board. So Vodcast community, you know what to do in your own way, either through the emojis, through your expressions in the chat. Let's welcome Pascal Losambe as our guest co-host for today's Intentional Conversations podcast. I am going to spotlight you to bring you into the conversation, but I'm so thrilled. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for being here. And just greet this audience in your own way. And Pascal, I know that you have watched a couple of our podcasts, and so you know that one of the things we often like to get our guest co-hosts an opportunity to do after we share their credentials, their accolades, their bio, is for you to then share some additional intel that we would not know about you from reading your bio. So help us to connect with you at a deeper level. But welcome, my friend. How are you today? I'm so well, Dr. Nika. It's such a joy and it's such an honor to be here with you all today. I recognize some names, some people that I've had the pleasure of working with and partnering with and getting to know. So welcome to everybody in the space and welcome to some of the familiar faces as well. Thank you for that tremendous introduction um, as well. You know, um, I will take this opportunity just to introduce myself a little bit. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, um, in South Africa where I spent most of my formative years, but I was born in Ido Ekiti, Nigeria. My family hails from the Congo. And then we lived in Eswatini, which was formerly Swaziland, and then moved to America. And so my journey 
has taken me to many different spaces and places. And this, this notion and this theme of belonging is some, something that is birthed from my experiences and really birthed from within me as well. And as I've studied fundamental science, um, I found it very, very instrumental in allowing me to understand human behavior and, the, and life in general. And um, I'm so excited to share some of the research that I was involved with, some of the research that I'm seeing in the field, especially relating to neurobiology and neuroscience and the intersection with DEI. And so, uh, Dr. Nika, I'm so thankful. And I will um, ashamedly say that it's Dr. Nika's birthday today. And so I want to honor her in this space and um, very thankful for her mentorship, her leadership, and really what she means in this broader conversation of DEIB as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Pascal, for the birthday wishes. So let's jump right in. You said that there's definitely an intersection between biology and DEI. And before we started, we were chatting and um, you, you mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the value of asking why and really understanding why, because it helps us to connect better to ourselves and, and also just to how in which we understand others. And so just articulate in your own way for us, what do you see the significance of the two intersecting and how does that gain um, value to, to this broader body of work? Thank you, Nika. You know, it's so instrumental and so important for us to start to understand the human body and the human mind and the brain, especially when we walk into different spaces and places and we start to interact with individuals, we start to really go through the cycle of what they call human socialization. How do where we start to kind of learn about the world, there is something that is happening in your mind, in your brain, both consciously and beneath the consciousness, in the subconscious as well. And when we take up a lens and hold up the frame of DEI, it's no different. And as we, what Daniel Siegel terms, as we attain mind sight, we start to understand how our minds and our brains work and why we react to different situations. We start to get an appreciation for um, really taking control and agency over how we behave in different spaces. In addition, we build a capacity for empathy because we understand that the experience that somebody else is going through, we too may have experienced ourselves, maybe in a different context, maybe for different reasons, but because I understand my emotions, because I can understand what somebody is going through, not at the superficial level, but even deeper than that, it builds our capacity for empathy. And as a result, that's why this notion, this intersection is so, so important. It's important for unity. It's important for reconciliation. It's important for belonging, which is part of my heart's mission um, in the field. Beautifully stated, Pascal. I, I love the connectivity there and how you brought it full circle. So let's talk about cultural intelligence. And I also want you to give us the um, the ability to understand how you see cultural intelligence. And again, this idea of neurobiology, neuroscience, um, the understanding of human behavior, how does that all connect together? So Dr. Nika, when I think of intelligence, I'm, I'm talking about getting skills and tools for a certain skill set and being able to apply those skills and tools to novel situations. Mm. You have emotional intelligence, you have positive intelligence, and now we have this cultural intelligence. Do I have the skills and tools 
to apply my cultural understanding, my cultural way of being and understand somebody else's cultural way of being. And so that I can interact with them in a manner that allows us to achieve our goals and achieve a certain um, desired outcome together. And so cultural intelligence is not something we do. It's more of a mindset. Am I humble enough to be able to be open to understanding what somebody else, um, how somebody else has experienced the world? Am I open enough and humble enough to accept that I don't know everything there is to know about somebody who I'm encountering um, from a different culture? Am I, am I humble enough to understand that through their lived experiences, through their perspectives, I'm able to also revise my perspectives continually so that I can have a successful outcome? When we think about neurobiology, Dr. Nika, we are looking at, when we look at the cycle of human socialization, when we are born, we are not born into a world that is neutral. We are born into a world that has pre-existing values and pre-existing beliefs. And oftentimes we go through a first socialization where the adults in our lives start to teach us these values, these beliefs. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it is a, a parent or a guardian. Maybe it is a, a relative of some kind teaching us these values. And then we start to enter institutions and we start to form relationships that start to reinforce certain ways of beings. And we are rewarded and redirected when we demonstrate these behaviors. And so throughout our human socialization, we are learning both explicitly and implicitly. But something is happening underneath the surface, in your mind and in your brain. You know, in the Asian times, Dr. Nika, when something would happen, when you would experience something, they would often build an altar or representation of the event that happened so that when people walked to that place and saw that statue or that altar, they would be reminded of what happened. Your brain does the same thing. It creates these neural networks that represent your experiences, your values, your beliefs underneath the surface. And as a result, that becomes the frame of reference through which you see the world, which is very subjective. So the work of cultural intelligence acknowledges that you have a specific frame of reference that somebody may not share. You have a specific frame of reference that society has taught you through these different agents of socialization. And are you humble enough and are you teachable enough to accept, to put on the cloak, to put on the mindset that you don't know everything there is to know, but to ask the right questions and approach it with a specific posture? Pascal, that's a word. I mean, I'm so, what do they say in black churches often? That'll preach. That'll that will really preach. preach. Yes. No, I, I, I love this. There's so many places I want to take this conversation. But, you know, what you just described is often what I think people have trepidation around when we call in bias, right? It's because they feel like, well, if you're calling in the bias that I have, then you're really communicating that I'm a bad person. And I say bias doesn't make us bad people. It makes us human, right? but it also does not exonerate us from the consequences of our actions. And so part of building up that cultural intelligence is doing precisely what you said, understanding and recognizing that there are school skills and tools that we can then learn and leverage and use 
to be able to help avoid the bias that may just creep up because we're human from creating harm to other people? Are we willing to then subscribe to that and to hone those skills and to, um, you know, the word humility comes up a lot when we talk about, you know, this topic. And what I love about how in which you have articulated cultural intelligence and this relationship to um, the human behavior is that oftentimes when we think about cultural competence, which is one way it's referred to, you know, can we fully be competent across every imaginable cultural aspect, you know, of, of every person that exists? No, we can't. But when we put it in the context of cultural intelligence, what it's saying is that there's skills and there's tools and there's still always going to be room for growth yes. and deepening our learning and understanding. So I love how you brought that full circle for us. So thank you. Yes. All righty. I want to back up a second and um, I want you to share with us, how did you begin your DEI journey and where did you see that there's this keen intersection that I believe is really important to center um, conversations around, coaching around, learning and development around to help people to deepen their value set around diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. You know, Nika, when I emerged from college and graduate school in biology, you know, I thought that that was something that I wanted to do. You know, I was looking at the intersection of, of the brain, you know, your nervous system and your immune system. And I was studying an AIDS model, um, HIV, because of um, my background where HIV AIDS is such a, um, it's, it's a disease that is really plaguing the continent um, of Africa in general. Um, as I started to move on my journey, my professional journey, I started to educate, I started to teach, um, mostly as a way to try and figure out whether I wanted to go to the next level in the sciences or whether I wanted to take a different path. But as I entered the field of education, I started to recognize and I started to see, you know, we often talk about field work. I started to see things that I started to experience things. And I started to look at the students that I was interacting with. And I said, hold on, there is something going on here. And as I started to take my background in biology and, and neuroscience and neurobiology and start, to, and I started to look at human behavior, it started to make sense to me in a unique way. And so I said, let me start to kind of delve deeper into this work of DEI, cultural competence, to see what scholars are saying in the field. And that is where my two worlds collide. When a student walks into my space, I recognize that they are asking three questions. Can I trust you? Is this a safe place? And does your behavior remind me of a situation I've been in before? And as we zoom into the brain, there is this part of your brain called the thalamus. It's like UPS. You know, UPS, you um, kind of send packages and then they send it off to the final destination. So you receive and you perceive signals from the world through your senses. And it often goes to the thalamus. And the thalamus then sends the signal to an area of the emotional brain called the amygdala. That's where we learn what to be afraid of. Our fear conditioning often resides in the amygdala. Your amygdala then checks with your hippocampus, which is your memory, but also the thalamus sends the signal to your neocortex, which is your higher order thinking part of the brain. The signal from the thalamus to the amygdala is shorter. It, it gets to the amygdala first before it gets to your higher order thinking part of the brain. And so we see life very emotionally. 
And when we look at what is stored in the hippocampus and what is stored in the amygdala, which also works for long-term memory of, uh, of people of color especially, you will find that you will find that when you look at the TV, you will see images of deficiency, images of brutal acts of violence. That is what is stored. So if there is a barrier to trust, we can remind ourselves that we, we undergo this socialization, but then we remember, we remember different things. And the way your mind remembers things is by, using, by way of highlights. So when you walk into a space and you see somebody with a certain identity, your brain starts to look through that file cabinet mm -hmm. of experiences that you've had, of experiences of people that see, that, that share your identity, of experiences of loved ones. And then you start to apply a certain mindset to that space. And so as I was sitting in my classrooms, I was recognizing that, you know, students of color were gravitating to me but they didn't have that same trust for uh, people that didn't share their identities. And it's because of what was happening in their minds and in their brains. And so I started to ask the question, how do we start to negotiate these spaces? Mm -hmm. How do we put up images on the walls for people to see themselves represented? Because that is important. How do we start to use the names of individuals so that you, it can signal to the brain that this is a space where your identity will be impacted? And if I say your name and I affirm you shortly after, that is a good thing for the brain. And so I saw a way of engaging students even in a deeper way so that we can start to really impact their experiences in different spaces. I just got to sit with this for a moment. I don't know about this podcast community, but this is a lot. This is so good. It is so in depth and you're giving us a science lesson. And I will admit there's a lot of big words that I need to go look up and learn a little bit more about, but I'm understanding the essence of how you're making all these connections. And it is fascinating to hear. So I want to slow walk this a bit because she said something at the start that I think is critical for us to all grasp. And that was the three things that oftentimes when people walk into a space, they are questioning and looking to affirm. Can I trust you? Is this a safe place? And I think the third one I'm paraphrasing here um, is, is there some type of behavior occurring that reminds me of a past or prior experience? Did I get that last one right? So absolutely. You even said it better so than good. I did. No, that is so good. Those are three key questions. And so for me, Based upon what I'm hearing today, I want to be much more thoughtful about when I enter into spaces or when people enter into spaces where I already dwell, am I doing all that I can to make them feel like, yes, they can trust me. Yes, this space is safe. And just be mindful that there could be some past experiences that could be coming up for them and for me and check myself, right? Check myself. And so that, and I think that is the best way that I hear a lot of people talk about pausing as a great skill set and practice when you are trying to mitigate or disrupt bias. And those moments of pause can be so incredibly powerful. Yes. 
And so if you're thinking, well, what do I do in that pause? If nothing else, reflect on these three things, you know, is there something coming up for me that's bringing me to a past experience that may not have relevance in this moment because it could be steeped in bias. It could be steeped in stereotypes or records maybe that we've stored because of those past experiences. And it shouldn't necessarily find its way into whatever kind of judgments intentionally or unintentionally are coming up into our minds. So y'all, this is good. Pascal is teaching and I hope y'all are picking up what he's putting down. <laughs> okay, I wanna go to the next question. So you are co-founder and chief content officer for Synergy Consulting Company. We see that in your background. So what Synergy's shared humanity framework? You talked to us a little bit as we were preparing for today about your shared humanity framework. Can you explain that to this audience? Absolutely, Dr. Nika. You know, um, when we take any behavior or any action that somebody performs and we start to kind of break it down and we start to break down that behavior, you will find that our needs are universal, mm -hmm. that we share in our humanity, we share the same fundamental human needs. And if we look at Abraham Maslow, who was inspired by um, some, some indigenous populations when he kind of came up with this theory, um, he started to see that these fundamental human needs involve physiological needs. You need air, food, water, shelter. You have safety needs, and I'll add psychological safety onto that. Mm -hmm. Safety means that you're free from danger. Psychological safety means I can interact with you without the fear of feeling embarrassed, without repercussions, without feeling discriminated against or marginalized in some way in that environment. We have belonging needs, mm -hmm. needs to feel supported, need to feel connected, to be seen, to be known, and to be understood in my environment. Then we have esteem needs to feel valued, to feel like I'm being acknowledged for the gifts that I bring to the table as well. And then at the top, we have self-actualization to reach our full potential, to maximize our creativity. And so if I break those needs down, I can break them down into three categories. You have your physiological needs, your physical needs, your psychological needs, and you also have your purpose needs. And Maslow adds something really important in his theory. He says that if a lower level need is not fulfilled, then you cannot move up his triangle, this ladder that he constructed. Mm -hmm. So if my physical and psychological needs are not met in my space, in my environment, in my workplace, in my place of influence, then I will not be achieving at my fullest potential. But the shared humanity outlines and highlights the fact that we can understand each other because we share the same needs, similar needs. We fulfill them in different ways. And the reason we have those needs depends a lot on the identities that we carry. That's one aspect of our shared humanity. And so when we understand that, it calls for us to become more self-aware. Like how am I and how am I, is my behavior impacting people in those fundamental human needs? Can I exercise humility? Can I be humble enough to understand that the action that somebody or the behavior somebody is performing, there is a lot more underneath the surface that I don't see and I don't understand. And so as a result of that, 
I know that you have a need for belonging, for safety, for esteem. So I need to dive a little bit deeper. Can I engage with you with dignity? Can I give you dignity in my risk? That means that I am giving time to understand what your perspective is. Can I acknowledge that you are a unique individual? And there was a black psychologist that really looked at the values of black individuals. And he said that one of the most important things for um, individuals, for black individuals is self-determination. Can I control the narrative of who I am when I walk into your space? Can you not look at me through a preconceived lens? That is something that is essential. So acknowledging the uniqueness of others and then recognizing that we have a fundamental need for human connection. Absolutely. There was a study that came out that showed that when we connect with one another, when we perspective take, which is not the same thing as empathy, but when we understand the way you are viewing things and the values, it actually enhances our ability to show empathy. Mm. The part of your brain, the insular cingulate cortex, the capacity for empathy enlarges. And can I then position myself to give empathy and compassion with action as well? So by knowing that we share uh, our human potential is large, by understanding that our human needs are similar, and by understanding how our minds and brains work, which is very similar, we can then engage with one another in a way that allows us to advance this narrative towards unity, reconciliation in an interdependent manner. Beautifully stated. Yes, perspective taking certainly helps fuel um, connection and empathy and compassion, understanding. And it really is the root of, of how we're able to better um, understand human behavior, human needs. You know, as you were talking, what was coming up for me, you were sharing Maslow's and we were all familiar with it, but what was coming up for me is just a simple old saying that a lot of our um, seasoned elders, individuals will say, which is, you know, people don't want to know what you know until they know that you care. Right. Mm -hmm. So how, how are we showing that we care? You know, how are we showing forth that level of just humanity at the bare minimum? And then we can engage deeper. So this is really good. So as I mentioned at the start of the hour, um, today's um, conversation is going to end a bit early. And so I want to make sure that we go ahead and jump into some of the questions or curiosities that our audience here may be holding and they want to engage you in. So I'm going to go to one more question, but I wanted to give you an alert so that you all can prepare to present your questions and you can do so by sharing them in the chat. Um, or if you are feeling inclined and you would like to socialize your question live and we do welcome that, we will invite you to unmute yourself. We will spotlight you and um, make sure that you can be in conversation with our guest co-host today. So um, I wanna talk about um, the things that you have coming up. What's, what's coming up for you? What's on the horizon for Synergy and for Pascal? Yeah, you know, we we have um, had the pleasure and the privilege of really walking alongside, and this is the city of Fort Wayne. That's why I recognize some names. And we we've built a fifteen month, and it's ongoing. So we've done um, fifteen different um, keynotes on this topic relating to race, the brain, and the mind. Mm. And we will continue this work. And what I find, Nika, is that. Um, 
there is a big disconnect. There has been such tremendous work that has been done in the academic world on race and the brain, and but it, it is having trouble filtering down into um, um, our common and everyday society as well. And so what I am on a quest to do is bring that down a little bit more. And so we are continuing that work um, with, with the city and um, you know, their plans to kind of expand. And um, so we are continuing that good work. We are then also, um, we have a number of, of consulting sessions that we um, are doing with different organizations to really start to allow them to understand their mind and the brain and how this connects to human behavior. And it allows them to gain a responsibility and it's an opportunity for them to really advance their, um, their environments and their cultures as a result. So um, we have a, a, a number of speaking engagements and consultings coming up and, and you know, working on a few publications just to make sure we are, we are also putting um, a concise message together using the shared humanity framework. No, that is great. That is great. I look forward for another opportunity, Pascal, for us to collaborate. So um, let's see, Tracy has a question. Um, so her, her question is, how can I contact Dr. Losambe for speaking engagements? Well, we will certainly, you know, place a lot of his contact information as well, like LinkedIn into the chat. But Pascal, do you want to also maybe provide um, an, a response to that? Yes, you know, um, and you can contact me via LinkedIn, um, Facebook, and um, also we have a website, uh, synergyconsultingcompany.com, and um, you can go on there and please um, click on, on speaking engagements and you can fill out a form just to give a few details about who you are and what you're looking for as well. That's great. Thank you. And we placed your LinkedIn, of course, into the chat. So I have another question, but I want to go there without giving space and time for someone else um, in this community. If you are having some, some curiosities that are coming up for you or some contributions that you want to share to this broader audience, I wanna give you a chance to do so. So feel free to raise your hand or maybe even just unmute yourself at this time. Just giving it a moment while people are percolating on maybe what they want to bring to the conversation. Okay, well, while folks are still thinking, um, I wanna talk about education because obviously when I was reading your bio before, you have a lot of connectivity to the education realm. And so um, as we talk about cultural intelligence and we talk about, of course, the intersection of um, neurobiology, neuroscience, human behavior to this broad work of DEIB, what are those connection points that you believe educators need to have top of mind um, as they are um, you know, under the, the care of, of all of these individuals that are very impressionable and that are still trying to learn and understand how to navigate life? What would you say would be some key critical considerations they should be holding in mind? You know, as we look at the landscape of education, you know, we, um, we, we, we have moved from a model where, you know, the teacher is kind of the sage on the stage where they are in front of the classroom delivering content. And what we are seeing is the need to engage the identities of students in an intentional way. Mm. 
we have a part of our brain called the reticular activating system. Your brain is smart. We always say that the brain is always eavesdropping on your experience. And so have you ever had a situation where you buy a, maybe a shoe or a car or something like that? And all of a sudden you start to notice that same car, your brain is telling you that you like this car, you like the shoe. So I'm going to pay attention as well. Is and that, that what that happens. is? That is that is so real because yes, someone can mention a car to me like, oh, I got a new car, so and so. Never thought about the car, never noticed the car. Then all of a sudden, it's like I'm seeing millions of these cars. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, Dr. Nika. And your mind does the same thing with your identity, your salient yeah. identities. So as you grow up and you start to socialize, there are different parts of your identity that your mind and your brain say, pay attention to this. Race is one of those identities where your brain and mind is saying race is a significant category, social category that individuals will pay attention to as you move through the world. And so you become sensitive to that. And so when we now take it into the education realm, there was a study through Stanford that came out and there were some ninth grade students that were struggling academically and they put in an ethnic studies course in the ninth grade year. And they saw a complete turnaround of the academic performance of these kids and it was sustained long-term. It was because they were engaging with topics that were important to their identity. There was purpose. There was purpose in their learning. They were engaging and leveraging those salient identities very purposefully. So as a teacher, when you um, are listening to this, you might be asking, um, how do you even start to do this? Number one, it's important to really revisit frameworks for engaging students' prior knowledge, to also understand what parts of their identities are important to them as they're walking into your space. Create um, a foster an environment of autonomy where they are able to explore different topics related to the theme that you're trying to bring forward, but they can connect it to their, their worlds. And so when we talk about purpose, we're talking about um, something that is important to self, and something that is important beyond yourself that you can impact the world with. And so that model is shifting and they're showing that when you are when you aligning your curriculum um, or even a unit of study, it doesn't have to be a whole thing with purpose, it has lasting gains for students. And so it's that. it's really important. And and um, you know, we we often hear that you know you want the the teachers to mirror the students in schools, et cetera. And there's a major underrepresentations of teachers right. of color in our country. And again, I'm gonna zoom into the brain because we are individuals that are designed for group living, experiments and research will show that. Nika, if you affirm me in this space, mm -hmm. for because you share a salient identity that I have, it has a lot more weight to me and my internal uh, or internalized identity than if somebody else does. Secondly, mm -hmm. because you are such a mentor and a force in the field, what you say to me, I start internalizing into who I am. You often hear it said, for these students that their frontal lobes are still under construction. 
part of what is in that frontal lobe is an area called the medial prefrontal cortex. That's where you gain a sense of self. Your self-concept, your self-identity is still under construction with these kids. And so when they don't see themselves represented on the halls, in the halls and on the walls, where they don't see an individual that shares the identity as a teacher, it really starts to impact this, their sense of who they think they are. And this is not conscious, it's very unconscious as well. And let's take this to organizations. If there are no significant individuals in decision-making, in areas of leadership that share my salient identity, then that becomes a factor that I start to kind of perceive and make assumptions about with regard to that environment as well. But if there is an individual where there are key decision makers who share my salient identity, there are mentors and sponsors that speak into my professional identity, it holds weight. It starts to really give me a sense of who I am and what I can do in that environment. And that is because we are individuals that have been designed intentionally for group living um, mm. very purposely. No, you did such an incredible job of articulating the significance of this concept to not only the education um, you know, realm, but then also to the workplace. And so as you were talking about purpose, um, you know, engaging in topics that are important to one's identity, um, it just reminded me that when we think about workplaces, that's why there's such value in ERGs, BRGs, employee resource groups, business resource groups. People need a safe space where you feel like you're going to certainly have centered um, topics and content that's relevant to, to, to your identity. And so um, I love how you brought that full circle. Do you see there being a correlation to um, the achievement gap? You know, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and, you know, that is what I kind of try to focus a little bit of my dissertation on is yeah. looking at whether this could be a bridge or a way to start to close that achievement gap even more purposefully. And yeah. what that means is just providing educators with a framework to think about their organizational cultures. Yeah. And so the cultural competence framework that I was working on was by um, Terrell and um, ooh, why am I forgetting? Anyway, so it says that we need to continually assess our cultures, mm-hmm. continually gain feedback as to how different populations are experiencing your culture. You need to value diversity. Maybe it is like you just did at the beginning, highlighting different ev- months or events or things that are important to that salient identity. Right. It's important to manage the dynamics of difference. So make sure that when you when there are differences, you understand how to communicate or what kind of communication frameworks people are bringing to the table and set norms around that with people's voices in mind and start to institutionalize cultural change, those things that are working, start to embed that into the culture even more purposefully. And so it's a very powerful framework that people can use to start to think about their cultures in the classroom, in the workplace, et cetera. Yeah, and it requires being purposeful, as you mentioned, and intentional. So I wanna talk about triggers for a second, because 
spoke on how the mind processes safe spaces when we engage with others. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we process triggers, because a lot of people right now, if we just think about all that we've been exposed to, um, we, are, we are being triggered by a lot. And so talk Correct. about how triggers are being processed and, and the why and, and how that comes up for us. Excellent question, um, Nika. I think I'll answer it in two ways for you. Number one, there was some very amazing research that was done by um, Matthew Lieberman and from UCLA. And Matthew Lieberman um, talked a lot about, um, he, he, he put electrodes on people and sent them into an MRI machine and asked them to kind of label their emotions as they were listening to a story. And he found that when you're able to identify your triggers or label your emotions, the unconscious becomes more conscious, and then you can start to shape and change behaviors. Triggers work the same way. So if you were walking into a dark room and I was hiding and I just showed up and scared you, you would react in a way where your brain is saying, I need to keep you safe. And I'm going, I don't care what you think about the situation. But in the past, I know that when I'm surprised and when there's uncertainty, I'm going to apply the same reasoning that I have in the past to this situation and get out of it. But if you start to recognize what your triggers are, then you're more likely to have agency and control over them, or you're able to kind of make them more conscious so that you can deal with them, pause and regulate your behavior. However, with that said, Nika, people are tired. People are exhausted. Neuroscientist um, Lisa Feldman Barrett says that we're each given a body budget, an energy budget for the day. And we can either use that budget to perform the tasks on hand, or we can use that budget to constantly undergo threat appraisals in our environment. But I will, to that, I will say, what we need to keep in mind is the long game because your brain is always eavesdropping on your experiences. So the more you react a certain way, the more representations or the more neural networks for that reaction are going to be created. And so the more you default to those reactions, the more you may not be open to being solution-minded. And William Cross in 1971 had his Black Identity Development Model. There will come a time where right now, many of us are in the striving phase. We want to, lead, we want to really make progress and progress can be measured in, in two ways. What happened now compared to the past and what happened in the future, well, what the ideal is compared to what is happening now. We are often in the phase of striving, but in our identity development, we're going to start to switch and we're going to start to look back and want to leave the world for the subsequent generations better than we found it. And so with that said, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this about me or is this about the next generation coming up? And both can happen, but in his identity development, he said something very beautiful, that we start to look more towards interdependence as a result. So as we start to be exhausted, as we start to experience things over and over again, as we have the tendency to want to run to our corners, we take a 50,000 foot view and, say, and see that that maybe maintains a level of divisiveness. But if we are committed to the goal of unity, 
we need to all be engaged in this conversation. We need to be bold enough to speak about our experiences, our perspectives, and also be humble enough to really start to listen to each other and understand how to be solution-minded. And with that, I will, I will just end with a caveat. It's also important to know what your boundaries are. If somebody is crossing those boundaries, then it's better that you probably don't engage in a meaningful way because then you might kind of give way to your emotions. But um, the work that we're very interested in at Synergy is how to kind of move forward in this narrative and look divisiveness in the face. This is not the hard, but it takes interdependence to make it happen. Pascal, I don't know of a better way to end than on that note. That was so well stated and you're leaving us with a lot, a lot to process, a lot to unpack, a lot to be in critical reflection around, which that's, that's all good stuff. And I can't thank you enough for saying yes to our invitation and being here. Um, I, I hope that we get to be in conversation again. We need to invite you back because there's so much more to unpack. And I'm sure there's more that you would love to share. The whole energy budget conversation, you know, we talk all about managing our time. Are we managing our energy as well? So that was a great kind of That's call right. to action to us. How are we managing our energy? And it came off of the question about being triggered. And so as we just think about all that's happening in the world, all that creates anxiety for us and frustrates us, we have to make sure that we are, again, being very much attuned to the needs of our body. We're honoring the needs of our bodies so that we can make sure that when we sense we're being triggered, um, we, we know what tools and what resources to go to to help us to make sure we can um, ground ourselves accordingly. And so thank you so very much. I want to give you the final you know, 60 seconds to just share any parting remarks um, that you would like to socialize with this community. Thank you, Dr. Nika. Thank you for your time and thank you for everybody for being here. When we look at history and we look at movements that were effective in really progressing this narrative of divisiveness, you know, I think of figures like John Newton, who, who really engaged in the slave trade, who started to profit from the slave trade, but later in his life, he became a fierce abolitionist because he saw the humanity in people. I think of people like John Rankin, who was um, instrumental in the Underground Railroad, um, bringing people to freedom across the Ohio River. I think of Virginia Foster Durr, who, who really um, teamed up with Rosa Parks and E.D. Nixon of the NAACP. We need interdependence in a major way. Mm -hmm. And in order to be interdependent, we have to be willing to be humble. We have to be willing to listen to one another. We have to understand that we all have different experiences. And if we look at each other through the lens of assumptions, then progress will not be made. There is a cost to silence. There is a cost to speaking up. But if we have the goal of belonging, and if we have the goal of unity, and if we have the goal of reconciliation, then we all belong in this conversation. And if we all belong, then we have to co-own this narrative to leave the world better than we have found it. So thank you, Dr. Nika. Thank you so very much. Pascal Wilsambe, I hope you all will connect with him. Thank you all for being here. We look forward to seeing you next week. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you, bye-bye.